Okay, let's take care of a little business first. If you were here last week, you knew that I was not. Anybody missed me? Did you miss me? Just tell me you missed me. I know Greg did a wonderful job. Let me tell you the story because I told Jamie, let's call it a bug because I want it to come from me. <laughs> Terry and I went uh, for Christmas, went to see my son in, in uh, Pendleton, Oregon. And it just so happened I had a doctor's appointment the day before we went. And so they checked my blood pressure and all that kind of stuff. And so I had a, just a little boil working on my bum. It gets better. And so uh, when the doctor was done and he said, Pastor, is there anything else? And I thought, if I tell him about my boil, he's going to want a lancet and then it may put, throw my trip off. And you know how old people are. If you've got something wrong, ignore it and it'll go away. <laughs> and so I said, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. And so Terry and I go up there and, and, and we had a great Christmas and, and this little boil began to grow and grow and grow and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't want to tell anybody, but I was very gingerly in sitting down. And so my son, who I've had back sore before, he said, are you having back problems again? I said, yeah, lower back problems. <laughs> so I would sit up, but I wasn't in any pain, except when you sit down. You know, you just can't plop. You got to sit down. And so uh, this thing gets worse and worse. And uh, so Terry came home Sunday night. She had to work the week. And I flew to my sister's house in San Jose. And uh, again, you uh, very gingerly sitting down, and they assumed my back was hurting. Because you don't want to tell them about a boil on your bum, because then they want to look at it. And, <laughs> and it's just more than I wanted to do. And so what I did, I, uh, I made it through, and it was fine. Just sit down carefully, get up carefully, and all that kind of stuff. And so when I got home on Friday afternoon, I showed my dear wife my bum. And she said, oh, my word, you need to go to the doctor. And I'm telling you, when Terry says you need to go to the doctor, you better get there right now. And so I said, well, sure. And so I went Saturday morning and did my little ritual, got all my sermon rail ready to go. And so I thought I'd stop by uh, Cigna as my insurance, and their offices are closed, so I went to the urgent care. And I went to the urgent care there, and, and I got in after 10 minutes. And so I texted Terry. I said, hey, it only took me 10 minutes to get in. I was all proud. And so I had the doctor look at my backside, and I said, if you could just lance that, I've got to, he says, no, 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 no. You're, we're not going to lance that here. You need to go straight to the hospital. And I said, ah, can we put this off till Monday? You know, I'm a pastor and I got to speak tomorrow. He says, you're not going to church tomorrow. And I thought, who do you think you are? You're the doctor. So anyway, I uh, called Jamie and I said, see if Pastor Greg is available. Andy, well, thank you, Greg, for filling in. And so I go to the emergency room at Gilbert Mercy, and they take a look at it. They say, we need to do a CAT scan. And I, so they put me in one of those lovely gowns. You know the gowns I'm talking about, don't you? And put me in one of their little uh, layaway places. You lay away in, in the little place anyway. And so they said, uh, would you like a television? I said, hot dog. And they say, brought one in, watched the Rose Bowl right there. And I wasn't in any pain. So later they came and said, this is a little deeper than we thought, so we're going to admit you into the hospital. I said, you're kidding me. And they said, we'll do surgery in the morning. I said, surgery? I said, you're like, you're going to just numb me a little bit. And, and no, 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 no. We're going to put you out. And if these yellows will be here, and we're going to have to cut this thing out. And I said, oh, no. See, I wanted to tell the story because I don't mind talking about my bum. I don't want somebody else talking about it. 
So anyway, I tell you what, they, they, I don't, I'm not trying to claim miracle and all that. It, I have not experienced any pain at all. And so they cut it out. And on Sunday morning, Monday morning, I had them up and going. And they said, we need to keep you probably till Thursday. Well, the doctor came in and says, can you take the week off? And I said, I don't know. I, I got vacation coming. I think I can. And I said, but I have to be out on Saturday. A dear friend of mine passed away, and I promised his family I would do the memorial service, which we did here. And he says, well, you'll probably be out on Thursday, and so uh, Saturday you'll be fine. And so they took, got the cultures back and got me the right antibiotics and all that stuff, let me out on Tuesday, so I've been good to go from then. So when you hear the pastor got a bug, everyone thinks, Rona. <laughs> and I did not get Corona. I just had a, I call it a, a, a boil in the lower part of my back. So if you ask me how I'm doing, I'm doing fine. Uh, I don't think it's miraculous. I just think I got a leather rear. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm good to go. And I'm getting as much sympathy as I can out of that deal. But anyway, that's, 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 uh, that's that. So that's why I wasn't here last Sunday. And so, but I was going to make this announcement then. And good thing I didn't because we had some more money come in. You know, we did a year, year, end of the year offering. And we were hoping to raise $12,000 for a whole litany of, of list of things that we wanted to do. And do you know how much you people gave, you on, online and those here? We had over $25,000 come in. Come in, guys. It's not just pledged and I promise and if God helps me and all that kind of stuff. This is money in the bank and it is incredible. And so we are going to get to do all kinds of wonderful things uh, with that money and we appreciate it. And so while all this was cooking, uh, for those of you that don't know, I am a regular at Liberty Market. I go there often, and uh, please don't join me. I do my work there, so uh, I'd hate to have you sit there and me ignore you. But anyway, and so I, I can't say I'm friends with the guys, but I know the owners, and you know they're, they're good Christian, Joe Johnson and Dave, uh, forget his last name. Anyway, they're good Christian folk, and they're getting ready to remodel Liberty Market. I said, Dave, used restaurant furniture is worthless to you but if I got a tax receipt that you're going to really like, if you will donate that to Life Community, we can use it, and I'll give you a tax receipt for it. And so they got together, had a board meeting, all that kind of stuff, and they came back and said, sure. So if you've never been to Liberty Market, show, put the first light up there. See that booth up there? And put the next one up. There's uh, those, the other half of that booth. Put the next one up. Booths along that wall. The green booth that is curved in there will fit within the inch of our where the black booth is. Now we're going to take the black booth to the teen center, fix all that up. But we have a probably forty, fifty thousand dollars worth of furniture that was given to us, and we actually have some money to put it all together. And so uh, they said, "Could you send a team out?" And I said, "Yes, we could." And they said, "Could you be there at six o'clock?" in the morning on the 22nd, and I said, not only me, but Roy Sablaski will put together a whole group of people. <laughs> and I'll be there too, naturally. I'll be there to supervise and move chairs. And anyway, we've got to take the stuff out of there. And so Roy's putting together a team. If you could help us move chairs, move booths, all that kind of stuff, they're going to bring it down to the church uh, on the 22nd of this month. And so we are really excited about that. Another change is, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, Jeremiah is, uh, is, is not leading worship for us anymore. He still works at the school. 
when you work at the school and you do what Jeremiah does, you are more than busy. They've got all kinds of productions. And Jeremiah said, you know, this is just too much to do worship and all that every week. And so I said, Jeremiah, don't worry about it. Uh, and so sometimes in church, I don't know if you've been around church, but sometimes when people disappear, you wonder, I wonder if they messed up. <laughs> I wonder if they got mad. Nobody's mad. Nobody got messed up. Nobody's messed up. It's just the truth of it is he's way, way too busy. So what we've asked Pete to do is the guy that played the guitar, for those of you that don't know Pete, to be the uh, director of the musicians. It's just a lot to direct the musicians. You've got to be an uh, excellent musician yourself to do that. So Pete is going to do that. We've asked Hannah to be our worship leader. And uh, so she's going to be work with the vocals and, and the singers and all that kind of stuff. And then in the same breath, uh, we're making, she's already been, but Jamie Johnson is what we're calling the service producer. If you think it's too loud, talk to Jamie. If you think it's not loud enough, talk to Jamie. If you think it's too cold, too hot, too this, too that, I'm telling you, Jamie's your gal. You talk to her, and she will fix you up so well, and you're going to be so happy. Uh, we don't want 45 people going to the sound man saying, turn it up, turn it down, turn it up. Who's ever been in a situation like that where that happens? So you go to Jamie, and she'll fix you right up, and then uh, everything will be just fine. With every head bowed and every eye closed, and no one looking. No, I'm not. <laughs> I think you just preached your sermon. No, I didn't. Because I, I tell you, when you're a pastor, we've got some pastors here. When you're a pastor, it's, I don't want to admit it, but, but vacations, Christmas, holidays, they really get in the way of what you're trying to do. I mean, I love Christmas, uh, way in the manger and all that kind of stuff. And I like that kind of stuff. And great to go see Jeff. You know, Jeff and his church are doing just wonderful in Pendleton. I said, son, you've got a home here. You need to stay here forever. And he says, no kidding. And so anyway, but, but holidays, and I'm all for holidays and vacations and all that. But I've got a lot to say. It used to be we did church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and you had lots of time because you're talking about an hour every time, but that is not true anymore, and I'm not going to keep you an hour. Aren't you glad of that? But there's lots to say and sometimes no time to say it. And so I kind of started a series made for more, and so obviously Christmas time and my little uh, uh, bum problem and and those kind of things, I called it bummed out sickness. That's what I'm going to call it from now on. And so I started a series. And uh, the first week was on uh, people with a really need to be known. They used to call it fame, and that's a word they don't use anymore. But it's uh, the, the very important person. They, they, they need to be known. They need to be seen. They need lots of followers. And the drive that drives that, we talked about that. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. And then we talked about the, the disease to please and about people who are people pleasers that just will do anything, say anything, just to get people to like you. And it's a, it's, a, it's a curse, and it'll, matter of fact, Proverbs says, it is a snare to you, the fear of man. So we talked about that, and today I want to talk about the plight of perfection. Now, per, the plight of perfectionism. If you're a perfectionist, don't raise your hand. It's not altar call time. If you live with a perfectionist, you say a secret prayer right now, oh, Jesus, let him hear this. If you've got perfectionist folks that are online, <laughs> this is for you, bud. This is for you. And ma'am, I'm preaching this just for him. So he'll get, see, you hear that, have a happy new year. Well, I'm going to tell you how to have a happy new year. Who wants a happy new year? 
Yeah, yeah, we all want that. I'm going to tell you how to do that. And so it's in your bulletin. If you didn't get one, they're on the back table back there. It says, perfectionists live under the watchful eye of the biggest critics, the pushiest taskmasters, and the most aggressive standard setters themselves. See, perfectionists, they lie all the time to show their more perfect self. If you don't believe it, look at Instagram, look at, look at Facebook, look at the followers. It, it, they just do anything to make themselves look really, really good. Or they act really, really busy, like they're important. And I'd love to talk to you, but I'm really busy, and I can't sit down and talk. And so on and on they go, and they're just way too busy. They, they avoid any kind of relationships. They deal in avoidance. And then perfectionists tell themselves, well, you know, it's just the price you pay for success. I want things better than they should be. I want to do it for Jesus. All kinds of stuff. And I'm telling you, I've heard it all and probably said half of it all. But the truth of it is, you don't like yourself. And the truth of it is, you're not comfortable in your own skin. It always could be a little better, a little, a little more, a little more, a little more. Three kinds of three types of perfectionist is a self-oriented perfectionist. It's when you hold unrealistically high expectations for yourself. You battle with feelings of guilt, often obsessing to the point of being stuck. You're paralyzed with fear and you're prone to procrastinate and struggle with deep feelings of inadequacy. People who are perfectionist and expect perfection of themselves. You drive yourself nuts. You drive people around you nuts too. So people who are self-oriented perfectionists, they just think they have to be perfect. It's uh, a lot of different reasons why it happens, but I'm not going to talk about all that today. But the externally oriented perfectionist is you believe others expect you to be perfect. So you cope with the pressure. You often use self-depreciating humor as a defense. You often feel alone and depressed and desperate because you know you will never be enough. I know a lot of preacher's kids that suffer with this kind of stuff because the parents think the kids ought to act perfect so the deacons will like them. And these kids are, pastor's kids are raised weird because they think they need to be perfect and there's external pressure. And I determined when I was raising my kids, uh, they weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. So I wasn't going to make them try. Jeff, my son, would come to church with a T-shirt with a tie painted on it. And do you remember that, the way that they did for balding people? had spray-on hair. Anybody remember that? He would spray his hair a different color almost every week, and it was just nuts, and he seemed to enjoy it, and I was just so proud of him when he did that. <laughs> Jeff, you be you, son. <laughs> and so the others oriented perfection. Now, this is the one that drives your family crazy, is you expect others to live up to your impossible standards. You lack empathy. You often tear others down with abrasive and demeaning humor, and you for those that don't even meet your standards. You hold unbelievable standards for everybody else, and it's always done under the guise, well, it's for their good. If they get a B, well, it could have been an A, son. If they do this, it could have been a little better. And I want my child, I want my firm, I want my company, I want my whoever to be the best they can be. I'm really doing it for them. Baloney you are, you're a perfectionist, and you're driving them nuts. And they probably can't stand to be around you. Pastor, don't say that. Then I take it back. I know a lot of people can't stand to be around it because they're always telling you what you ought to start doing. And you think it's your call of God. I'm after all, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to tell you what you're doing wrong and, and so you can get it all fixed up. But it's always under the guise is best for them. And so the roots of perfectionism is, I think, is to cover our own insecurity. 
people that can act as bold as they want to, but every one of us are not, maybe not filled, but you got insecurities rolling around in you, and none of us want to expose all that, and so we use perfectionism as a cover for that. It's when, when Adam and Eve sinned, when there was something wrong. What did they do? They, they, they made coverings for themselves. And God came down and he said, who told you you were naked? And he said, have you eaten of the, of the tree? And they said, yes, God knew it already, obviously. But we, we do these kind of things to cover ourselves. And I think it's more than just psychological. I think there are spiritual implications. See, for, forgiveness is more than just a psychological thing of how to learn to forgive. Jesus said in Matthew 18, here's the process of forgiveness. If you want to learn how to forgive, there's a process given in Matthew 18. And Jesus covers that. I'm not going to cover that today. But it gets, let's get started with verse, uh, verse 1. It's so good. It should have been a Bible verse. Number 1. Jesus leveled perfectionist playing field by raising the bar. Well, Jesus comes along and he leveled the, the playing field for the perfectionist by raising the bar. See, when we level the playing field, we lower the bar so that everybody gets a trophy. It's a participation award. And you get a little T-shirt, you get a little trophy, and the truth of it is you weren't paying attention to the little kid's soccer game the whole time, but everybody gets a trophy because we don't want to develop any losers. And I think it would don't start in with me, Armando. And I think in the process, we develop all kinds of losers because there's no prize in winning. Because the guy that wins, the guy that loses, gets the same thing. So what we do, we've lowered the bar, and no longer do you fail. Who remembers when you used to fail school? You, that's the F word. You can't use that anymore, and so we don't. We just, uh, they've chosen to retake the class. And so uh, it's... it's and so perfectionists love a low bar. They just love a low bar so they can set the standard. All right, low bar, I'll set the standard for you. Matthew 23, Jesus gives a scathing rebuke to the scribes and Pharisees. He just lets them have it because these guys were the gatekeepers. They were the ones who were setting the bar for everything. And Jesus just goes after them and he says, you bunch of hypocrites. He says, you tie heavy burdens on people's backs and you make them carry it and you won't do one single thing to lift them. He says, you, you don't enter in yourselves and you keep everybody else from entering in. He says, you're like the cork in the bottle. And because these guys were the ones who were setting the standards, and so Jesus comes and sets a completely different standard. He understood human nature, not just the Pharisees, because he knew we wouldn't be dealing with Pharisees. They're Pharisees, but they're of a different nature. It may not even be a religious thing. It could be a thing of work. It could be a thing in your family of people that don't quite measure up to the standard that somebody else has set. And so what Jesus came to do with his incredible wisdom, what the wisdom of God is just incredible, is he does what he does. He raises the bar. Didn't lower the bar. He raises the bar. He says it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. But I warn you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Are you kidding me? These guys, their job was to be righteous. They would go around and do righteous things all the time. And they would condemn anybody who didn't meet their standard. And they were just, they were just terrible people to be around like some religious folks today are. That if you don't meet their standard, they'll just condemn you and criticize you and judge you. Aren't you glad you never do that? But these Pharisees are like, and Jesus, I'll tell you what, I'll disqualify you all. He said, if your righteousness isn't better than theirs, and they think, oh, my word. 
Because when Jesus talked about righteousness, he said, we're not, we're not talking about murder here. No, 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 no. If you think murder is bad, you're right. But I'm talking to you about your anger. I'm talking to you about your hatred. He says, I'm not talking about adultery here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about lust. And half the men in the crowd says, uh-oh. He says, we're not talking about how much money you give. We're talking about how much you have left. See, they were taking the offering one time, and, and this widow puts in two pennies. And Jesus said she gave more than the rest. And they said, are you kidding me? Did you see how much I gave to that end-of-the-year offering? And Jesus says, not what you gave, it's what you got left. She gave out of her need. He said to love your neighbors. I mean, old neighbors, sometimes they're hard to love because they're weird. Anybody have relatives that you had to spend Christmas with and you just did it because it was Christmas time? No? I think we ought to start a class for that, how to spend holidays with weird people. <laughs> Festivus for the rest of us or something like that. I, I'm sure somebody ought to do a program on But he says, he says, no, 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 we're not talking about loving the people you're supposed to kind of get along with. He says, I want you to love your enemies. You're kidding me. I hate those people. Do you know what they believe? They think that this, this and, and, and I'm sure, I, I wish you could be up here because you could explain it much better than I do, how weird the others are. And how wrong they are. And they're ruining our country. Sorry, 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 sorry. And so Jesus says, he, he, he raises the bar. He says, if you're not better than them. And so there was only one who was better than them. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. And so Jesus was the only one that qualified for the bar. Number two, deep internal needs often drive the perfectionist. See, I think there's something going on. See, religion, and, and the reason I think it's spiritual, is religion always asks, what must I do to be right with God? What are you supposed to do to be right with God? They came to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to do the works of God? So there's that, the, the question is, and so religion always says, you're right with God by what you do. And every group, your family or everybody, has a, their own standard. And they kind of set a standard, and it's funny, depends, you can tell what kind of church you're from, because that will fit your standard. And people, and it's never really documented, it's never really said, but it's kind of understood that in this church we value this, this, and this. And other things, well, I'm not even sure that's a sin anymore. But why that? You'll go to hell for that. I tell you what, you better not do that. And, of course, church attendance was always one of them, so you better be there just in case the rapture came, you would actually go. <laughs> See, the Pharisees, Old Testament, because they, they didn't have a New Testament, so there was the law. You keep the law, keep the law, do the law. The Bible says, do the law. The law says, keep the law. And so these guys kept the law, and they were perfect. I mean, they weren't perfect at it, but they, were, they set the standard. And so you, you had to keep the law like they did. And Jesus just does away with their standard. He said, unless it exceeds it. I've seen families, and they've got this code of ethics, this code of thinking that if you think like us, it may not even be religious. See, I'm not trying to get doctrinal here or religious here or churchified here. I'm talking about the kind of mindsets that go into people that keep perfectionism alive, keep people bound under that 
kind of law, not just the Ten Commandments law, but bound under that kind of a law. People's own conscience. They live by whatever they believe they're supposed to do, and that becomes a law to themselves. And so Paul says, there lies the rub. Romans 10. He says, I know, Romans 10 too, it's there in your bulletin. He says, I know what enthusiasm Israel has for God. So Paul said, wow, look at those people. They're so zealous and so enthusiastic, and they go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and they put their 10% in, and they do this, and they go to church work day, and then they go help Liberty Market move that. No, no, they do all these things. What enthusiasm they have for God. <laughs> but Paul says, but it's misdirected zeal. These guys are just misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. And refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. See, Jesus came, you want to be right with God, come through me. No, 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 we don't want to do that. We've lived by this standard for a long time, and we're not going to. We've got our own standard. We're going to live by that. And Paul says they have a zeal for God, but it's just misdirected. And enthusiasm, but it's misdirected zeal. Because they reject God's way of being right with himself. And they've chosen their own way. And that's to keep the law that they've always believed. It's the way I was raised, Pastor. That's just what I believe. Well, you might have been raised in another era. So you develop your own standards. See, in, in, in the day, and again, they, they don't do that, and I'm not knocking any denomination. In the day, the church used to sell indulgences. Would you like to buy a sin? Well, that'll cost you $5,000. I'm sorry. Oh, you want that one. Well, that'll cost you $10,000. So they would raise money for these great cathedrals you see all over the place by selling indulgences for people who wanted to buy. And that's because they had the power to do that. And then nobody questioned it. And they thought, well, I guess so. So people would pay to get their favorite sin committed and not go to hell for it. And Paul says that's not exactly what we're talking about here. He says, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. See, perfectionists want to work really, really hard for what's already been given because they like self-achievement. Because the truth it is, it has its roots in pride. And it looks really good. It's not in your bulletin, but Colossians 2.23, the Living Bible says, These rules, they may seem good, for rules of this kind require strong devotion and are humiliating and hard on the body. Stayed up late, got up early, I couldn't... It looks really good, bud. But they have no effect when it comes to conquering a person's evil thoughts and desires. They only make you proud. You think it really looks good. But I'm telling you, you're full of yourself. You're full of yourself. You set your own standards and not the standard that Jesus set. You don't want his standard because you want to set your own. And no offense, but you're absolutely full of yourself. And then you wonder, where's God? Where's that inner sense that the Lord is with you, that he's there and being with you? Truth it is, you've rejected God's way and chosen your own. Number three. Aren't you glad there's only four points? <laughs> so God promises rest for the perfectionist. God's got a promise. God's got an answer for this guy. It's not just 
rail on you for what you're doing wrong. God's got an answer for this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8 said, If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day. Now, Joshua, remember Moses led him around in the wilderness for 40 years, brought him out of Egypt, did a great job, thanks, Mo. And so then Joshua took him to the promised land. It was Canaan land. It was the land of rest. And so Joshua spoke of another day. Guys, he says, this is not it. This is not it. Joshua spoke of another day because he could not give them the kind of rest that people needed. That would have to come with Jesus. Look at verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And again, it's not going to church on Saturday. It's not sleeping in one day a week and, and, and laying around not doing it. That's not the rest he's talking about. Amen. It's a rest from yourself. Look what he goes on to say. For those who enter God's rest will also rest from their own work as God did from his. Instead of that inner thing, driving, driving, more, more, faster, better, richer, whatever, more, more. There's a place in Jesus where you can say, ah, this is good. Could have been better. Could have been more. Shut up. This is good. It's not Jesus saying it could have been better, could have been more. Maybe that's your mama from way back ago. That's your daddy who might have been unpleasable. And it drives, 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 drives you. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest. No strife for the people of God. For the one who entered into that rest has ceased from his own work as God did from ours, from, from his. There's not a need to be perfect. Issues you've got no control over that are not your job, they're God's job. Like other people, like your grown children, like your past, like some global issues that you have no control over. Maybe your future that you've got very little control over. See, us trust and surrender and rest in God's plan for you. Do you think you, God's got a plan for you? Oh, no, no, see, I'm not the pastor. I don't lead the church. I'm just a regular dude. I'm just a lady. I got a housewife. I got kids, whatever. God's got a plan for you. And it's trusting and surrendering his, to his plan, to his timeline to his ways. See, I, I don't want to say too much here. I used to think by the time you're 50, you're kind of done. Because that's really old. How do you know it's old when you're 20? But when you're 48, it's pretty young. And I thought by the time you're 50, you're probably done. At least by the time you're 60, you're done. And let me tell you, you younger people, watch it online. I tell you, I'm 69 and just starting to hit stride. I'm glad I didn't buy the lie that it's kind of over at 62. No, 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 no. So Hebrews 11, uh, not uh, verse 11, in the same chapter, he says, Therefore, let us labor, let us labor, therefore, to enter to that rest. He said, this is hard. He said, but let us labor to enter into that rest. God has a plan for you. You need to know that. 
Psalm 139.13 is not in your bulletin, but let me read some of God's plans for you. The psalmist says, Lord, you made the delicate inner parts of my body. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. Do you know that God's workmanship in you is marvelous? I never thought about that. He says, how well I know that. You watched over me as I was being formed. As I was woven together in my mother's womb, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. He said, Lord, before I was even born, every day of my life was recorded in your book. For children, for one reason or another, they never made it to full term. It's God's had a plan for them. All, every day of their life was recorded in his book before you were ever born. God knew you'd be here today, and he knew where you would be at, and he has a plan for you. It's not that you left him and he left you. You might have walked away, but he followed you to where you're at today. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. He says, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are always with me. See, Paul, the apostle, said it a little differently. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he said, we are God's masterpiece. Did you ever think of yourself as a masterpiece? Or do you kind of look at yourself as just something that didn't quite make the grade? Something that was cut on the editing floor. He says, we are God's masterpiece. I think you need to know that. God's not left you. Well, Pastor, it's really hard. Of course it's hard. Life is tough. But you're God's masterpiece. He has created us in Christ Jesus to do the good works he planned for us long ago. Do you think God just came into the scene of your life right now? No, God's got things for you to do, planned for you from the beginning of time. God wired you. He knows exactly what will bring the best meaning, the best purpose, the best joy, the greatest peace, the biggest blessing in your life. God's wired you. He set it all up. Guys, listen to me. The kingdom of God is not taken. It's received. We've received the kingdom, and it comes our way. You don't have to snatch and grab and claw onto life. No, no, no. You let God bring it to you. He'll bring it to you, and the opportunities will come. Yeah, you got to get moving. Once the opportunity there, you can't just sit around forever. But once the opportunities that God brings, it'll be just a joy to do what he has you do. And he's planned that long ago for you. For you to be a good grandfather to your grandchildren, grandmother to your grandkids, to be a parent, to be a husband, to be a wife, he's planned that. And he will empower you to do that. And there is nothing more important than that. I'm telling you, bud, there is nothing more important than that. We're talking about, I'm not talking about being lazy, inactive. But see, every time I start to go in a direction, either it comes from the inside of me or it comes from hell or it comes from somebody, they say, what do you mean? You didn't pray enough. You don't pray enough. And I say, no kidding. 
but he did. And I'm just going to bank off what he did. You know, Pastor, you don't fast enough. You, you can fast till you're skinny. And it's not going to be enough in your own mind. I know I, I didn't really, but he did. You don't have faith for that. Yeah, I know, but he does. See, and I'm not seeking to establish my own rightness. I'm banking on what he did. You're not smart enough to do those kinds of things. You no kidding. You don't have the intellect, no kidding. But he does. And I'm going to draft off of that and take what he did and apply it to my life. You don't have enough money for that? I know, but he does. See, and we formed this little partnership. It's absolutely wonderful. Because he was the one who was righteous. And I am the one that takes advantage of that, lives with that. Point number four, God's provision for a perfectionist is quick keeping score. Say, but you're keeping score and it's driving you nuts. In Luke 17, 5, interesting little uh, segment here. One day the apostle said to the Lord, we need more faith. Tell us how to get it. I mean, a reasonable question. Jesus, the next verse says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you say to this mountain. And so he talks about that kind of thing. And then in verse 7, he starts the story. Now, Jesus didn't just do random stuff. They ask him a question, increase our faith, tell us how to do that. And uh, verse 7, he says, he tells a story. Suppose one of you has a servant looking after sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? He says, now think about it. You got, you got employees out there working, watching sheep, what are you doing, whatever they do. And when he comes in from the field, you don't say, no, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I, now I owe you here, sit down. He says, no, no, no. You, you don't do that. See, our expectation of God is when we do something for him, okay, God, pay up, you owe me. I was nice to those crabby people, and I expect a good little blessing in the mail. Really. See, Jesus isn't talking about how people ought to appreciate one another. He's talking about how your faith is increased. Many of you keep way too much score, and you've got a really bad memory. Because you remember the good stuff you did, and you want payback for that, and you don't remember all the times you were a jerk yourself. See, when we're asking God to reward us, we are keeping score. And I want to pay out here. So he says, he doesn't say, uh, sit down and eat. Wouldn't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, so that after that you may eat and drink? Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? He says, you think this guy's entitled? He wants a bonus for showing up to work. After two days on the job, where's my promotion? Who's ever worked with people like that? Aren't they just a joy to be around? No, 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 no. Jesus does not like that. He says, verse, look at verse 10. So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what we were told to do. Amen. He said, let the attitude in you. When you do all this stuff, all the righteous stuff, and I'm sure everybody does it all. Then don't say, okay, God, now you owe me. 
It's four to nothing, and you, you're down four, so I need this. No, he says, no, 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 quit keeping score. What perfectionists do, they keep score all the time. They do one thing here, and they want two things here. They do two things here, they want four things there. He says, you want to have a lot of faith? Count yourself as an as, as unworthy servant. You've only done what you were told to do. Now, you understand when we obey God, <laughs> just let me hope it's not a great deal breaker here. When we obey God, we aren't helping God. He is helping us. When we obey God, we're not helping him. He's not wringing his hands. Oh, I just hope they do that because I really need that. He's God, heaven's sakes. He needs nothing. God is working to help us to quit being such a demanding, self-centered, controlling, perfectionist jerk. So he has you do things that get you out of yourself. Has you do things that that serve others and, and all kinds of stuff. He's, oh, he's, he's not wringing his hands hoping you vote right this next time. Because he voted wants his man, gal, guy in. No. He is the Lord. Musicians come up. Hadn't spoken in two weeks and I thought I'd Take the whole load out on you now. No, no, no. Next week's coming. You ought to wait till next week. Three quick questions. They're not in your bulletin, just things. And, and again, you answer them all right, and your spouse, the person next to you, or whoever, is going to go nuts. But <laughs> three quick questions about uh, perfectionism and uh, how uh, egocentric you really are. Okay, do I focus on what I'm supposed to do for God, or is my focus on what God has done for me? When you think about those kind of things, is your focus on what you're supposed to do for God and about what he needs you to do, and what you, or is your, Lord, what you've done for me? Question number two, do I work hard to win God's approval or do I live knowing I already have it? Working hard to win God's approval or do you really live your life knowing that you've already got it? that God considers you, and you consider yourself a masterpiece. You may not want to walk around and say that, but as you look inside, you know, understand that God's doing a wonderful, wonderful tapestry in your life. Third question. Do I believe that the right attitudes and actions will cause God to love me more? you believe that, you've probably got some perfectionism working in your life that's driving you nuts. And it's not just you. I'm concerned for your family, for your children, that you could be driving them nuts. When perfection is driving us, shame is riding shotgun and fear is the annoying backseat driver. So if you're driven by perfection, because shame's right next to you, there's this need to cover and hide and avoid. And fear is that voice in the back that just on and on and on. 
not have to be perfect because we have partnered with the one who is. He set the bar. He attained it. And now he said, here, let me help you over. Let me lift you up. Let me help carry you over. So if you've never opened your life to Christ, or maybe you really are, maybe online watching and you're really trying to do this in your own energy. You're trying to do this in your own strength because, I mean, what else can you do but do what you can do? I would just appeal to you this morning to open your life to Christ. Accept what he's done for you. Accept what he's given to you. And allow him to love you. Allow him to make all these things right on the inside of you. You can do that right where you're at, right where you're at. At home, in a coffee bar somewhere, wherever. But you open your life to Jesus. Jesus said, come and follow me. Why don't you decide today that you're going to follow Jesus? Then just go to God and say, Lord, how do I do that? He knows how. He'll get you there. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for these wonderful people. Lord, thank you for the gift that you've given to all of us, the provision you've made for all of us, O oh Lord. Lord, for those that struggle with just thinking they've got to be bigger, better, more perfect all the time, Lord, heal us. I pray that in Jesus' strong name.